Um, if you were to be honest, right, I'm not going to have you raise your hand or say anything, but just think about this in your own heart. If you were to be honest with yourself, maybe you're a little vulnerable, what area of your life needs transformation? What area of your life, maybe in other words, feels out of control? What area feels like it's out of control? What, what bad habits do you seem to still struggle with and think, am I ever going to be able to change? Maybe it's, it's anger, blowing up, you know, in anger. It's your temper. It's like the wife said about her husband, that her husband was temperamental. 90% temper, 10% mental, right? <laughs> temperamental. But in all seriousness, like freedom from those things that are out to destroy our lives. Maybe it's drinking too much. It's lust out of control. It's, you know, just outward bad habits. We call those sins of the flesh because they're kind of quantifiable. We, we realize we're doing certain things. We're behaving in a certain way. But what about those unquantifiable Sins of the heart, like pride, selfishness, um, self-righteousness, ungratefulness. It's easy on those first sets of, uh, of lists, so to speak, to figure that out. But what about the inside of our heart? What's going on there? So we're starting a, a series today, and it's called Deadly. And in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the subject of sin and starting next week, we're going to look at what's been known as the seven deadly sins throughout you know, a lot of church history. And the seven deadly sins are really just kind of a summary of, of all sins. But today, I wanted to start out just by the, the subject of sin. And this is not an easy subject to talk about, right? Because who likes to be told that they're doing something wrong? Who likes the feeling of guilt? Who likes all that comes with that, to be, to be told that we're doing wrong? And I really feel like this is important for me and for all of us, that, that as we go through this series and we look at the subject of sin, that we keep a humble posture, a humble posture before the Lord, before His Word. I want to read to you from Romans 3.23. It says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, in the Greek, everyone means everyone. Wow, you just learned Greek today. All means all. So that means every person that's ever lived other than Jesus has fallen short of God's glorious standard. That's an important verse to, to understand in our lives that none of us is ever going to be, be perfect. We've all blown it. I have, and I realize it every day. And I almost realize more and more, the more I walk with Jesus, you know, the, the condition of sin in, our, in my life as well. But it's, the, the fact is, is that we won't appreciate the gospel the way we should. We won't appreciate Jesus the way we should until we really understand the depths of sin. Sin is opposition against God. It's opposition against God's nature, his character, and his will. And it's, it's when you and I are opposing that. That's the depths of sin. So what's the deal with sin? We're going to talk about that this morning. What's the deal with sin first? Um, I saw this quote from Rick Warren. I thought this was good. He said, in order to stop defeating ourselves, we need to stop deceiving ourselves. 
Meaning, we deceive ourselves sometimes and just think, I don't really have a problem. This isn't really an issue. I'm not hurting anybody. Whatever it is we can do to to try to deceive ourselves, and yet we stay on this pattern, this cycle of defeat. God wants us off of that cycle of defeat and onto the the life that, that he has for us. So it's, again, understanding how sin works, what it is, and, and what God's done about it is what we're going to talk about this morning. So a couple of things about sin to, to, to remember is sin is, first of all, disobedience. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Why is there, like, civil law, traffic law, right? Those, when we disobey traffic law, if we drive 120 miles an hour or, or way over the speed limit... Notice I said way over the speed limit, or you run through a stop sign, a red light. Those traffic laws are there to protect us and to protect one another so that we don't don't hurt ourselves and we don't hurt other people. But I'm guilty, and so is probably everybody in here except for my daughter Chandler, of, you know, not, you know, going the speed limit, right? If it says 45, eh, I could probably go 50, right? It's how much can we get away with sometimes. But when you're talking about sin and what God wants from us in his moral law and his law of who he is, we can't think, what can I get away with? That, that can't be our mindset. First John 3, 4 says, everyone who sins is breaking God's law. For all sin is contrary to the law of God. And I think, you know, when you read Romans chapter 1, if you're new to the Bible or new to Jesus or you never read that, Romans chapter 1 says that every person is guilty before God because we have a conscience. We were born with a sense of wrong and right in each one of us. I remember two, two stories came to mind when I was thinking about this. When I was a little boy, I'm significantly younger than my siblings, and we were playing football in our backyard, and my brothers had their friends over, and they were all, you know, being whatever, and swearing and so forth, and I had never said a swear word in my life. And all of a sudden, I was under their, their influence, and I remember I got tackled, and I, I said a cuss word, and I started bawling my eyes out. And I felt so horrible. I was like, you ask my brother, they'll tell you. And I was calling out to God, and we didn't even go to church. Like, God, forgive me. And there was something tender in my heart, and we all know that, right? There's, there was something now over a period of time, obviously, our conscience gets a little less tender. When Chase, our oldest daughter, she's 22 now, when she was probably like two or three years old, maybe two, I remember driving, and she was in her car seat in the, in the back of the car, and we had pulled up to some railroad tracks, and it was summer, and the window was down, and uh, had taught her to, to not litter, right? And I had a piece of gum, and I, I threw it out the window. And I look in the rearview mirror, and she's bawling, this little, little toddler, and she's bawling. I go, Chase, what's, what's the matter? She was like, you're going to jail. You broke the law. And, and I was like, oh, how tender is that little conscience, right? We know it's wrong to disobey. There's something that God put inside of us. But here's the deal. The more you and I disobey, the less tender our conscience is and the more hard it actually becomes. But first and foremost, sin, in a working definition, 
is disobedience to the character, will, and nature of God. Secondly, sin is destructive. It's very destructive. Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, says that in Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. In chapter 2, he creates Adam and Eve. And he tells Adam and Eve, he says, listen, you're free to eat of any tree in this garden. All these trees are yours except for one. He reserved for himself the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was called. And so he said, do not eat from this tree. If you do, you'll die. You have all these other trees that you can eat from. So in chapter 3, we see where sin entered into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Satan comes to, to Eve and he says, did God say that you'll die if you eat of the fruit of the tree? And she says, yeah, he did. He said that we would die. And then so he gets trying to get her to question God's word, but then he tries to get her to question God's character by saying, you're not going to die. God knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll become like him. And they were tempted. And when they were tempted to question God's word, God's character, they ate and sin entered into the world. The fall of humanity. And that, that, that sin has been passed on from generation to generation to generation. And we're all born in this condition of sin. And it's destructive because did Adam and Eve die right away after they ate from the tree? No. They did eventually physically die. They died spiritually. Inside, they, were, they, they just pulled themselves away from having life in God and a connection with God. And again, the more we meditate on this, the more we're going to appreciate what Jesus did for us and who he is. And so their disobedience brought destruction. It brought death. Romans 6, 23, you wonder why people die, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. There is a dot, dot, dot there because there's good news beyond the next part of that verse, and we'll get to that in a little while. But it's, it's, Jesus came to erase death. Adam and Eve were created to live forever, but their sin brought death. Sin brings death not just physically, though. How many of us know that sin brings death to marriages, to relationships, you know, to, to people's lives? It's, it's devastating and destructive. Thirdly, you're thinking to yourself this morning, like, why didn't I sleep in today? Like, why did I come? But no, this is, there's good news in, in, in understanding a message on sin. Thirdly, sin is a debt. It's a debt. Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, 12. He says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. When you and I sin against each other, when we sin against somebody, the first word we say to ourselves is, I owe you an apology, right? Or you owe me an apology. Because we know there's a debt that needs to be paid somehow with an apology. Maybe it's literally with some sort of restitution. But sin creates a debt. So much more concerning our relationship with God. Sin is a debt first to God and that it's a, it is offensive to God when we, when we don't care about his will, and we don't look at what he has to say about our lives, and we push him aside. That's, that's the root of sin. Fourthly, sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. Thus our series. James 1, <clears throat> excuse me, 1, 14 and 15 says, but each person is tempted 
when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Again, it's deadly. And learning to take sin seriously and to understand what Jesus did for us is so important because when we don't have that understanding, we're playing with fire. Literally, playing with fire. The, the, the sin is deceptive in its very nature, too. It doesn't, we don't think we're going to hurt ourselves or anybody else, and yet, boom, it brings, brings death. And I was thinking about taking things serious that we don't always understand, and it made me think about a time, again, when I was a little boy, I had my neighbor friend came over, and we used to... Um, my dad can't ground me for this anymore, but when, when, when we, we'd go find his, he had a, a 44 Magnum, big old gun, right? And we used to like to open it up and, and just, you know, we were little boys, right? And, and he didn't know. I mean, he didn't know we were doing that, and I knew where the gun was. And one time I remember he was over there, and it had this chamber, and he would you know, spin it to put the bullets in. And, and I shut it and cocked the gun back and was just going to, I had enough sense not to aim it anywhere, and I was just going to shoot it at the, at the floor, pretend like I was shooting the floor. And uh, my friend said, stop, I think I saw something. We opened it up, and there was a bullet that would have went ba-boom right as I shot the floor. Can you imagine? Like, that would have been a little scary and how dangerous that is. This last February, we went to a, a shooting range. I'd never ever shot a gun since then and just shot some targets. And I tell you what, I walked away from, from that experience with a whole new fear of the power of what a gun can do and take it very, very seriously, right? And we have to have that mentality when it comes to sin. We have to remember how deadly it is and the destructive nature that it has in our lives. But let's, let's shift gears a little bit. What has God done about our sin. What has God done about it? Two of the, the sweetest words you'll ever say, Jesus Christ. God gave us Jesus Christ. That's what he's done about our sin. That's what we're singing and celebrating every day of our life. Romans 5, 6 says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Jesus came at the right time. He paid that debt. He paid, he, he, he tasted death for us so that we could have eternal life. If you ever, um, I hear about this, this has never happened to me before, but people are in like drive through of a Starbucks line and somebody before you pays for your coffee. Anybody ever had that happen to them before? A couple of you? Well, I've never had that happen, <laughs> but I bet it was probably a pretty cool experience. And, you know, you, you're like, pull up and, oh, that car in front of you paid for your, your, your Starbucks. Well, that's a good feeling, right? Somebody was, was generous in that. But the in, in most important part of understanding that would be Jesus paid a debt that we could never pay back. Jesus paid the bill. The bigger the bill, the bigger the debt that's paid off, the more we appreciate what's been done for us. And so again, until we understand the weight and depth and debt of sin, we don't appreciate Jesus the way that we should. And the more we're aware of what we've been forgiven, the more love we will have for him and the more desire to obey and have his life in us. So this is how we experience freedom from sin's penalty. Sin brings death. 
and it brings a separation from God. And it, Jesus coming and dying and paying the penalty on the cross and his resurrection, living a perfect life, dying a brutal death, and rising again from the dead, paid our debt. He paid whoever would put their faith, hope, and trust on him. Even though we physically die, we're going to have eternal life with him, and we have the promise of the resurrection. So we have to re, you know, remember that he paid that penalty. Here's the rest of... Uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gospel. Jesus died for sinners. And it's, it is so simple and yet so profound, and it's so important for us to bank our whole life on what Jesus did for us. But we can't stop at just the fact that Jesus died for our sins and that he paid our penalty. It doesn't end there. And for a lot of people, when it comes to being a Christian, they, they, they see it just as this, I don't know, it's kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card or it's, it's light, you know, fire insurance or whatever. But that's not the life that God wants us to live. He wants us to be empowered. God wants us to experience freedom from sin. Now, you're never going to fully experience perfect freedom from sin in this life but those habits, those outward habits, those things that we feel like we can never break free from, those sins of our heart of pride and selfishness and ungratefulness can change, and we can experience freedom from that. If Jesus died for my sin, why do I still struggle with sin? You ever wondered that? Tell me if you can relate to the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. He says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I can relate to that. We know the good that we're supposed to do, and we don't do it. We know the things that we're, we're supposed to avoid, and we do it anyway. And there's, in, inside of us, there's a, a frustration, a discouragement. Will I change? Can I change? And I wonder if someone in here this morning is thinking that. Can I change? It, it, it's important theologically to understand that sin is a condition. Sin causes sins. What, what I do doesn't make me a sinner. I was born a sinner. We were all born in this condition. It's been passed from Adam and Eve all the way to us today. And that's why we need Jesus. Here's what Paul says in Romans 7.20. This is a, kind of a bizarre scripture. He says, but if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. What in the world does that mean? Well, I know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean it's an excuse for us to live however we want to live. It's not an excuse that the devil made me do it, or that's just the way I am. That's, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, he's stating a fact that sin is a condition. It's a, it's a condition of, of our lives that Jesus came to deal with. He continues on in Romans 7, 24 and 25. Oh, what a miserable person I am. <clears throat> Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. That phrase there, my sinful nature, that's important to understand. You can write this down. As believers, we have two natures. And scholars, theologians, commentaries, they have all kinds of different ways of trying to to word this, but the bottom line is we have the old us, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the the new, the old and the new. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. I mean, it's, it, the mindset has to be like, I take off the old and put on the new. And that's a, daily, that's a daily thing. Because sometimes, like, if you ever catch yourself, you know, you're, you're walking in the old way, and, you're, and you, you're like, how did I get this back on me again? Didn't I take this jacket off and put on the new yesterday? And it's a daily process of recognizing the old in the new, and those two natures are at a tug of war inside of us. It's sin in you wanting you to do wrong, and it's the Spirit of God that now lives in us showing us how to do right and what is right. I um, read about the most bizarre thing. Um, You know, the Roman emperors used to think up the most despicable punishments that they possibly could for people who disobeyed. That's where we get crucifixion. Like the Roman emperors thought up, hey, let's hang a criminal on the cross by, on a cross and let the whole world see this will happen to you if you disobey Roman law. And so there was this one emperor came up with this penalty that if, if you murdered somebody, that they would bind with rope the dead corpse to your back. And you had to carry your murder victim around with you wherever you went. It's pretty hideous to even think about. And if you tried to take it off, they would kill you. That was punishable by death. And if somebody tried to help you take that corpse off, it was punishable by death. But in a weird way, that is kind of an illustration of what Paul's saying here of having two natures. That we're to put off the old and put on the new. Romans 6, 11 says, count yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Take off the old and put on the new. The old person, render it, consider it dead. Don't give it life. Don't give it the time of day. And yet, that's the whole struggle there with our growing in Christ and becoming who we are in Christ is a more and more growth, knowledge, and understanding of that. So how do I experience freedom from sin's power? We experience freedom from sin's penalty by what Jesus Christ did for us, by his grace, by his death and resurrection. Here, I got good news for you. The same thing that sets us free from sin's penalty frees us from its power. Today you're going, I'm a believer. I trust that Jesus is my Savior. He died on the cross for me. But I'm struggling. I'm struggling on a daily basis with habits and things that that I just can't seem to shake in my life. Here's the good news. Grace is the power to be free from sin's power. 
I'll tell you where we get this from. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, meaning grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Listen, we all realize we're sinners and that we need to trust in Christ for our salvation, our eternal salvation, but sometimes we try to get in the way and think that, you know, if I try harder, if I have my willpower to get over these sins and these things that I struggle with, we make rules for ourselves, rules and regulations and willpower never, has never changed anybody, not changed anybody from the inside out for sure. We need grace. Grace equals power. One of the best definitions for grace is the power to do what you could never do on your own. And today you're saying, I'm struggling. I can't break free. I know something's wrong here. I know I believe in Jesus. I know I trust, but why do I keep doing what I'm doing? Grace gives you the power to obey. Grace precedes obedience. And when you're receiving the grace of God, it will teach you to say no to ungodliness. Jesus said, it's the truth that will set you free. And and grace is truth. It's the truth about who we are in Jesus, who we're becoming and who we're going to be ultimately. The more I understand Jesus and the gospel, the freer I become. The more you understand the gospel and who Jesus is, the freer you will become. The more captivated that I become with, with Jesus, the less captivated I will be with sin. And it's lure because sin holds out a promise and so does Jesus. Sin holds out a promise that says, if you do this or you behave this way or you act this way, I'll give you happiness. And Jesus says, no, do things my way. Let me lead. Intentionally decide that you're going to do everything that I tell you to do and watch the kind of life that I'll give you. I was thinking, you know, only Christianity of all the world religions and faith says, love your enemies. Now think about the person in this world maybe that has hurt you the most, somebody that's done you wrong or somebody that you would consider your enemy. Jesus says, love that person, that we are to love our enemies. What I love about this truth and about the power to do what we could never do on, on our own is only Christianity can say, love your enemies, because it's the only thing that can give us the power to do that. It's the only thing that can give us the power to actually love our enemies. How do we receive this power? How do we receive this grace-filled power? And what is our involvement? Because I think sometimes if you've been walking with the Lord for a while or you've been reading the Bible, you know that we're saved by grace, faith and grace alone. But there's still this this struggle and we, we know that grace is the unmerited favor of God. We can't earn it. But here's, here's what I think is going to be a breakthrough for some of, of us this morning in this area. Grace negates meriting God's favor. It's the, you, you has to be by grace. It's a free gift to be received. But grace doesn't negate effort. It doesn't negate the effort on our part as disciples of Jesus to walk with him. It doesn't negate our involvement in this walk with him. That's so important. So two things that I think really summarize how do we feel freedom from sin's power? How do we actually get it? Stop trying and start abiding. 
So many times we're trying to be good Christians. We're trying to be better dads. We're trying to be better whatever. And it just doesn't work that way. The Christian life is not about trying. It's about abiding. When we abide in Jesus, that's when we get the power. He gives us the power. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So the the visual there is here's the vine and here's the branch. The branch is to bear fruit, but if it's not connected to the vine, it'll die and wither and be thrown away. The branch has to be connected deeply so that it can draw life. And the vine is the one that actually produces the fruit. The branch just gets to bear the fruit. That's a picture of our life. The closer connected I am with Jesus, maintaining a vital relationship with him, the closer I am to him, the more fruit there will be in my life. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Anybody struggle with being patient? Man, you know, having joy. How about self-control, gentleness? Instead of flying off the handle, we have a gentle answer. That's fruit, and that fruit is only going to come as we stay connected to Jesus, abide in Him. That's a day-by-day, even sometimes moment-by-moment, Lord, thanks that you're with me. And the more we, we spend time with Him in the Word and prayer and with others, the more we grow. Second thing is this, stop trying and start walking. What do I mean by that? Stop trying and start walking. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I think abiding in Jesus and walking in the Spirit are the same thing. Because if I'm abiding in Jesus, I'm walking in the Spirit. If I'm walking in the Spirit, I'm abiding in Jesus. And so it's important to understand that, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means to let Him, the Holy Spirit that lives in you, have His way. Let Him lead. You yield to Him. And the problem is, I don't always yield to the Spirit. I, you, you, we've all done this before, right? You're, you're in a conversation, and you're getting ready to say something that you know you're going to regret. And you go, uh, <laughs> and you knew in that moment you shouldn't have said it, right? Because the Spirit of God lives in you as a believer. You're His child. and He lives and dwells in you and will give you, you know, a conviction. Don't do that. Don't say that. Go this way. Do good to this person. And it's a, a matter of us learning as we abide in Jesus and walk in the Spirit. The cool part about this is walking in the Spirit is a promise first. That if you walk by the Spirit, you won't battle, you won't give in to the desires of the flesh, but it's also a choice. Will I, you know, obey and do what he says to do? So over the next seven weeks, we're going to talk through the seven deadly sins. And remembering that the seven deadly sins are a summary of of sin. In this whole series, I believe God wants transformation in my heart and in your heart so that we follow Jesus and abide in Him, and we bring glory to Him, and we have the kind of fruit that He wants in our life. A key verse that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks is found in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. 
It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't think there's any better way to respond in, from a, to a teaching on sin than to take communion together. Because Jesus doesn't want us to find our identity in our sin. He wants us to find our identity in him. Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall no longer be your master because you are no longer under the law, but you're under grace. That's awesome. Trying to master sin by rules and law is not going to work. The rules and law is there to be a mirror to show us that we're, we're screwing up. <laughs> but grace gives us the power to actually change. Grace in what Jesus did. He wants us to find our identity in him. He wants us to experience his power. And for the joy set before him, he came and died for us so that we could have life. So as we take communion this morning, don't take it lightly. As you take the bread and the cup, we're remembering the agony and all that Jesus did when, when our sins were poured out on him when he was on the cross. And he experienced separation from the Father as he bore the way to sin. That's deep. That should make each one of us fall on our knees in gratefulness to what he's done for us. We don't have to be separated from him. If today you're not sure whether you've ever received that grace to have freedom from sin's penalty, today's the day. Lord Jesus, I believe and trust that you're the Savior. You died for me. Tell him that. But also, it's a commitment to follow him as Lord, too. That we all of us together would intend to do all the things that he tells us to do and let him be the leader. Let him be the boss. Reaffirm that to him today, all of us. As we move to come get the elements, uh, what I want you to do is just grab the elements, take it back to your seat and where you're sitting, and then we'll take it together as a family. Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, as we approach the table, we examine our hearts. We know we have fallen short of your glorious standard. We know that the wages of sin is death, but your free gift of eternal life comes through Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that as we move forward in Jesus' name. Amen.